Hey everyone, welcome to another Your Amigos Esmo uh, podcast. Uh, Tom and I are here with Mo Alaf. Um, m- a couple hours after his presentation of the ECOG uh, Neo slash Adjuvant Renal Study with Nivolumab. Mo, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. You can please introduce yourself and then give us a give us a recap of the study um, in terms of the, the basic design and, and results, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. Mohamed Alaf, I'm uh, the Director of Urology at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and I had the pleasure today uh, to uh, present ECOG Akron 8143, uh, which essentially the premise of the study is that despite uh, best surgical uh, efforts, uh, we do not cure uh, a good number of our patients. They have recurrences. And this is a yet another trial uh, looking at a strategy to decrease uh, recurrence and, and maybe increase overall survival in that patient population. And it, the premise of the trial was to leverage uh, neoadjuvant uh, therapy and uh, the promise of potentially eliciting a better and stronger immune response by priming the immune system, but then also maximizing the immune effect by continuing immune engagement with an adjuvant, uh, with adjuvant doses. And so it was a randomized trial, one-to-one. Uh, the uh, treatment arm received neoadjuvant dose of nivolumab, followed by surgery, followed by nine monthly doses of uh, nivolumab, and the control arm, importantly, was uh, surveillance standard of care observation. Uh, this was an open label uh, trial, and uh, and we did mandate a biopsy in those uh, getting the nivolumab, although a non-diagnostic biopsy was considered good faith effort, and we still enrolled those patients. Hey, Mo, can I ask the, you uh, some questions? Yeah. Try to jump in before you go into results. No. You mentioned during your presentation, importantly, that patient advocates were part of the study design. And I'm wondering if, if maybe the requirements for biopsy are not in the other arm. I'm wondering what aspects that the, the patient voice was particularly strong, you know, maybe not having a placebo or other things. Yeah, thank you, Brian. And, and you know, I, I would say that I'm, I'm proud that this trial did incorporate uh, patient advocate voices and as you know, this is an investigator-initiated cooperative group study. And so there was a lot of discussion and presentation of the concept to uh, multiple uh, audiences, including patients. And the patients initially were not enthusiastic about a placebo uh, mm-hmm. uh, arm. And we can talk about that and quality of life data on some of the other adjuvant studies. So that was the, the, the initial kind of foray into the patient advocate voice. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, the other kind of big thing was that patients did not want to get nivolumab if they did not have renal cell carcinoma. And as you guys know, up to about 10% of patients with seemingly uh, aggressive renal cell carcinoma can have giant uh, oncocytomas Mo, or fat-poor angiomyelitis. Mo, did you think about doing a biopsy and then randomizing off the biopsy, so only include, including biopsy-proven disease, so there wouldn't have been the additional biopsy in, well, it would have been in both arms, essentially? Yeah, you know, we thought about it, Tom, and um, and because because of the logistics of biopsy, there's so many things that a biopsy introduces in a trial. But we also thought that that may introduce some biases that only the patients who are willing to undergo sort of a biopsy up front or those whose physicians uh, uh, thought that the disease looked kind of worse, uh, you know, what have you. So, so I think. Mo, did you um, enroll? Did yeah, you enroll yeah. fast, Mo? Did, was it a quick enrollment? You put a lot of patients in there. I think it was a fantastic investigator-initiated trial. You know, Ryan, myself, we've all done lots of these studies. And I, I always struggle 
to get patients on the study in an efficient manner. Do you think, was there an element of balancing getting the trial done as opposed to doing the perfect trial? There absolutely was. And you know, there is no such thing as a perfect trial, as you guys know. Uh, this was a tour de force. Tom knows better took... than anybody, actually. It took, uh, you know, it took multiple years. There was, you know, um, uh, initially, I think we were a little slow. It's a unique trial design. We, we, you know, I'm a urologist, so it's no surprise that I'm, I'm presenting it because it's a urology-centric trial, and we needed urologists where their clinics are set up to see patients, put them, you know, to, on surgery the next week, and, and now we need everyone to pause and think about a trial uh, and to also change uh, the thought process of, of and the decision uh, making, you know, people seen in the community told they need surgery in a week or two. Then they see us. We tell them there's this trial. And then they say, well, it's delaying my therapy. So, so yes, there are a lot of logistical hurd hurdles. But with the help of uh, urologists teaming with uh, oncologists and the uh, SUO, the Society of Urologic Oncology, S CTC, the clinical trials arm, really kind of brought it home for us and we were able to to approve public. can i ask you a couple eligibility questions i know you included some non-clear cell i want to ask you about the, the rationale for that and then also you ended up with a fair amount of t1 patients um I, I don't remember if you mentioned what the the clinical eligibility was to get in but i think it was about 10 percent and up ended up with pathologic t1 if i remember correctly yeah so so i'll tell you a little bit eligibility criteria we're basically uh, kidney tumors uh, that were uh, greater than seven centimeters or smaller tumors that had venous fat or nodal involvement on imaging. So this is clinical criteria, of course, because mm -hmm. there's a new adjuvant component. And then uh, we did allow M1 disease uh, or oligometastatic disease that was uh, to be rendered disease-free within 12 weeks of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of surgery. Uh, you know, importantly, from a clinical stage perspective, uh, about 3% of patients were actually clinical T1. But remember, Brian, there could be patients in this trial who had a three centimeter tumor that abutted the sinus fat and were mm -hmm. called clinical T3, right? Because of potential fat invasion. And the question is, what happened to those patients, you know, postoperatively? Postoperatively, the pathologic T1 uh, was 10%. So, so there was a, uh, you know, sort of potential an upstaging or downstaging to PT1, but there also was an upstaging to T3, given that greater than 60% of the patients were pathologic T3 or above. And Mo, you had to include the non-clear cell because half the patients didn't have a biopsy when they did the surgery, so that you didn't have a choice around that. And that well, that's quite... exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So and, you and we I were guess... also... Did you think about yeah, sorry. excluding? Did you think about excluding those patients from the primary analysis? Like saying we can bring those in, they can be a secondary analysis, but the primary analysis will just stick to the clear yeah. cell population. So the way the, tri the trial was was written, a secondary endpoint was recurrence-free survival for clear cell RCC only, and you're exactly right. Now the the, the number of non-clear cell w was capped. I forget off the top of my head what that number is. And we were monitoring that number. We never reached the threshold where we needed to, you know, kind of stop accruing uh, sort of these non-clear cells. But, but you wouldn't but have been able to randomize patients. You wouldn't, because when you randomized the patients, yes. had they gone to you, so you had no, you had no real control over that. You'd have to stop the whole trial altogether or start doing biopsies on, on patients before they were randomized right. to the surgery only arm. 
that exactly. When we were monitoring it to just make sure this didn't go awry, I, I'm glad we didn't have to sort of you know intervene in any way. But but, but you're right. It, this was a balance of getting the trial done, and in order to get it done and insist on sort of good faith effort biopsy in the treatment arm, uh, and and having the other arm be just you know surgery with surveillance. Uh, we had to really include non-clear cell. And it'll be an interesting subset analysis, as you said, to look at the uh, clear cell population alone, uh, to maybe look at the clear cell population that uh, had the high risk features, and also to have all of the above plus completing the entire trial, right? Getting the neoadjuvant treatment, because there was, uh, you know, in our consort diagram, you could see that uh, a good number of patients sort of dropped out at each phase of, of, of the of the treatment arm uh, which which usually which is a unique feature of sort of these neoadjuvant trials yeah I was going to ask about that I, in the in the nevo arm it looked like um, at least the, the version I'm looking at it was 47 patients didn't get the allocated intervention 20 were ineligible and 22 refused before beginning protocol therapies is that I mean how much do you think that affected the trial as you say it just kind of is what it is with neoadjuvant designs? But you'd think if yeah, they were randomized to the Nevo arm, they would be happy, right? That's kind of why you entered the trial, you know? So that, that those numbers seemed a little high to me. Uh, yeah, and, and, and they're high to us as well. And, and, and one of the points I tried to make in the presentation is that really this is an early kind of slice of the data. And we, we need to go and look at these, uh, you know, dropouts and, and, and ineligible, et cetera, to just see exactly what happened. Certainly, you know, listen, some people are going to progress on uh, uh, you know, while they're waiting and, and you know, potentially decide to, to go through. There's this concept that, you know, if you were symptomatic or maybe uh, uh, somebody was uneasy, even though you enrolled, people pushed you to kind of go get surgery. So it's hard to tell. I mean, there were 45 patients that did not receive nivolumab uh, in the, uh, sorry, did not receive surgery in the nivolumab arm compared to 28 patients in the observation arm. There were about 51 who did not get the neoadjuvant dose. And then, you know, surprising to me, 90 patients, 9-0, in the nivolumab treatment arm did not receive any adjuvant therapy. And so are those the patients that had a T1, T1 low-grade tumor and were told, don't, you know, by, by someone, you need to get out of the trial, don't take a toxic drug if, if you're cured? Or were, they, so, or were they the actual people who we think needed it, the people who, so, who had high-grade disease? And I don't know that. So yeah. well, your, your consult diagram is a bit of a car crash in that respect. In that you're losing <laughs> patients here and there. And, and, you know, it is, and listen, it is what it is. And I think the, there are two things. Number one is this is the reality. of Always, always picking great, uh, great descriptors, Tom. Yes, <laughs> yes a, car, a car crash. Um, Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and, and the issue is how much influence did that have on the results? Because the results, I think, it's fair to say were a bit disappointing and many people felt, well, you know, we're expecting a positive trial. And many people sort of, there's a, there's a I think it's a melanoma presentation looking at neoadjuvant versus adjuvant. And neoadjuvant looks better in melanoma. So what the question, I guess, is there are three things. Number one is, did, is it, did it just the neoadjuvant approach not work in this disease? Number one. Uh, number two is, is I guess, if, if that's not the case, have we got the trial right? Um, and, and had we done it differently with different, you know, different, in, different, different methods, and I'm not sure what they would be, um, could, yeah. we, uh, could we get a positive study that way? Do you think we've answered that question definitively? I mean, is this the end of neoadjuvant no. studies? 
I, I certainly hope not. And I would say n no. I, I think that, you know, the message I take is, listen, we were able to do a neoadjuvant trial in, in uh, you know, in our uh, in the GU space. Uh, I think that this hopefully should be the beginning of, of more investigation in the neoadjuvant space. To answer your kind of initial uh, you know, question, as you know, this trial was designed many years ago. And we, we didn't have the data that we have today on, you know, uh, on a lot of sort of this new adjuvant uh, therapy, et cetera. We also did not understand toxicity of PD-1 therapy in the early uh, days of this trial. You know, if you think back to Assure, even VEGF, you know, with, with side effects, people were quick to kind of get off treatment or, you know, panic. And now we know how to take care of these. Better. So th there's that aspect. There's, there's also the aspect of... Um, you know, did, did we, um, uh, you know, is this the right study design? Now, in retrospect, you know, and, and I would say I, I initially liked the trial design of a neoadjuvant therapy. So let's say three doses nivolumab neoadjuvantly. Why? Because it's more than one. And then have a adjuvant arm and then a placebo arm. And at the time, there just wasn't enough enthusiasm. And in the iterations and discussions, it just ended up not being the trial design that was selected. And we, we went with this. There's also the issue of open label, right, and, and not having a placebo arm. While, you know, great from a patient advocate standpoint. And again, I think we, we really should be getting those, those thoughts and opinions and, and, and voices in our trials. Scientifically, did that, you know, change things? But I would also say it's a real, it's a real world experience, right? Unlike a, a well curated adjuvant trial, where everybody gets surgery, right? And then you pick kind of the, the, the ones to get it. In a neoadjuvant trial, you know, uh, how many aren't going to get the surgery? How many are going to refuse therapy or, or for whatever reason? No, I think we need, we're going to learn a lot do, from this. Do you know, I, don't, I know you may not know individual patient data, but were there any patients who got toxicity from their neoadjuvant dose that precluded surgery or the other way had some surgical complication that precluded adjuvant nivolumab? Yeah, those are great questions, Brian, and I don't know the answers, and that, yeah. that's certainly going to be a topic of, of great yeah. uh, sort of investigation. Well, one of the things that concerned me was that your definition of an event was a progression event, which is very standard, of course, but also not having surgery. And, and, and those individuals were sensitive at baseline that caused that initial drop. Uh, the, that... You know, that is obviously challenging because many of those patients who didn't have surgery, won't, that won't be because their cancer is getting worse. In fact, the opposite could be true for some. How can you, how do you address that bias? And, that, and do you think that this is a robust surrogate for overall survival? Yeah, another great question. So, you know, I don't know that we know what happened to the patients who did not have surgery. So to your point that the present your, in your commentary, are those the one who, ones who responded and perhaps, you know, kind of dropped off because they were doing well? I, I doubt that. But but at the same time, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, could have they had surgery locally, right? They, they kind of came and enrolled in the trial and went and had surgery locally and it's not recorded. We just need to look into that, uh, I, I think, a little bit, um, you know, a little bit uh, more. Um, you know, and while our, our definition of uh, progression or an event was patients who did not have surgery, those who weren't, who weren't NED, and then true recurrences and, and deaths, um, you know, we did do a robust sensitivity analysis, and there were enough events. Because, you know, one thought, and I think you had brought it up to, to us, and it's a very smart thought, is with the big drop-off early, 
are is that the bulk of events informing futility and are we just looking at an immature data set and, and that's a great a great point and and when you had kind of brought it up which which you know it, it really made me think and i went back and we sliced and diced and looked at sort of the data and and there were uh, enough events after those so-called didn't have surgery events to to really call it from a futility standpoint and um you know, even without those events, 37 versus 29, those early events that you see the drop off in the Kaplan Myers, there were 69 in the in the treatment arm, 81 in the in the uh, treat in the uh, control arm, and and based on kind of how quickly we were approaching full information and the statistical uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, calculations, our statisticians are very comfortable saying that it met futility at least as as designed. And the question is you know, where do we go from here? Mo, there was no spectacular responses. Tony made this point, you know, which was there were no spectacular responses. There were no CRs. And was that because it's just not enough immune therapy? Or is it impossible to achieve that in kidney cancer? My experience of neoadjuvant therapy and Axel Beckstead, adjuvant Axie with with Valimab, and he didn't show any CRs either. Sorry, neoadjuvant. I mean, clearly these seven centimeter tumors are going to be hard in four weeks to disappear completely. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I would say yes. I, I think that um, the, the question is, one question is, is one dose too little? And the, the, the mean time between... I think we've lost Mo. He might come back. He's still on the thing. <laughs> I think we'll he took see. off, took off think... on his plane. Well, it was possibly true. Um, let's see if he comes back. Mo, are you there? I think what he was essentially saying was that it was difficult to uh, difficult to achieve CR with one neoadjuvant cycle. Well, yeah, I and mean, as you say, an axial study, even with doublet therapy, and I think more therapy, it's difficult. It doesn't mean there's not an immunologic effect that could persist, but at least pathologically and maybe radiographically, you're not going to see that. So the, the question I was going to ask him, I'll ask yes. you, Tom. Yeah, um, <laughs> and we're going to ask this in our Your Amigos Live conference coming up is, you know, what's the next adjuvant study we should do, right? We have four studies now, ramparts pending, three negative, one positive. There's all sorts of reasons the negative could be negative. We've talked about some of them here and in other places. Pember, as you said today, is pretty cleanly positive. So so what's the next trial we should do, right? Merck's doing the Pembro plus hip versus Pembro. But let's put that to the side and say you're you're king of the world. You have all the resources you want. What would you I don't do? feel like king of the world? I think that's the first place to start. <laughs> like on this, this rainy dome panel. I don't feel that way. But um, I don't know the answer to that. I, 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 I sort of talked a little bit about it. And I think we need to try and select some patients now. I genuinely feel that we're reaching a plateau with immune therapy. I think there are some question marks around CTLA-4, which are probably, I mean, I think CTLA-4 story probably peaked in 2019. And since then, we've had some slightly less impressive results come through. I don't, I don't think that, you know, so I'm not sure pursuing that any further um, in, in this yeah. disease is, is necessarily the right thing to do. That doesn't mean we should stop. I know that there, there is a... So what, what a, would you do? Well, I, I would probably try and... I genuinely would probably try and, and get a biomarker to see if we can find patients who benefit from therapy. And I'd be doing more biomarker work at this stage. Um, I think one so of you the may not, you may hold off on doing another trial until we've identified 
I, unless we, unless we like we've got the Pembroke trial with 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 HIF. I wouldn't want to do a VEGF TKI immune therapy mm. study particularly. No. I wouldn't want to do another CHA4 PDL1 trial. Um, I don't know if we need to do another. Um, uh, there's obviously the, the, the Devalimab trial mm. around the corner. I don't think we do. We need to do another single agent um, immune checkpoint study. I'm not sure. I'm mean, not sure the opportunity to do it, but so, I'm not sure we have to. Right. You um, said a lot of things, and it sounds what would like. What I do? What would you do? You're king. Again. I think I'm gonna. I think Prince. I'm being king. I probably. Yeah. I think I would. I would show restraint. Uh, and I would. I don't probably, know what that means. I probably wouldn't do any <laughs> immediate adjuvant study. In okay. now, I'd probably would like to see a second generation of drugs and a second generation of biomarkers and yeah. go from there. Now, <laughs> if I was an ambitious drug company with a PD-1 inhibitor, you might say that we haven't done a really clean PED second PD-1 study. Yeah. You might say, I'd like to get an approval off the back of that. And I suspect this neoadjuvant nivolumab study has got some flaws associated with it. And... And under those circumstances, there is a scope for that. And of course, the Juvalimab study and the Atezolid study are both PDL1. So if you said yeah. to me, how will I get a drug approved? That's my, how I do it. Yeah, no, no, said, no. But if you said to me, how do I want to move the field forward? I don't think yeah, that moves that the field correct. forward. I think we move the field forward with new drugs and new biomarkers. And I think we have hit this plateau where I don't think we can go much further with VEGF targeted therapy. Uh, and, I, and I don't think we can go that much further with single agent immune checkpoint inhibition. Now, the one study I, I would like to see, um, I would like to see a randomized phase two of three cycles of neoadjuvant therapy uh, rather than one. I'd like to just ask that question to see if we can have a slightly longer period of therapy. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't, you know, that, that wouldn't well, be I'm, a 10 out of 10 priority. For me. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I guess my answer, I'm afraid that this study, um, you know, might doom neoadjuvant therapy in kidney cancer, and I, I don't think it should. But I'm afraid that certainly any company looking at this is going to say, wow, that was a landmine and difficult to do. And isn't it simpler just to do adjuvant? And, and it certainly is. But Mo's, Mo's trying to come back in, but I'm blocking him because I think it's, it's got a whole lot better since he left. So um, I, he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we should finish. And then I, I agree with you. I think I don't know that there's a rush to the next adjuvant. Obviously, we agree on biomarkers. You know, I, I would probably favor more doublets of a you know, novel immune drug with the PD-1 backbone rather than, than other targeted or other pathways, but, but more details to come. I've got a question I'd like to ask you, Brian. We didn't Please. see overall survival. Um, I'm guessing the survival curve is there. There were, I'm, I'm sure there weren't too many events. Um, it's a relatively short follow-up, 16 months, and they've actually yeah. had fewer events in the other studies because it was a lower risk population. And when you take out that initial drop, yeah. the curve is much flatter. Um, how do you feel about, you know, stopping the study without OS in the knowledge that the progression-free survival signal was um, imperfect? And, um, and do you think we should routinely be showing the OS data if it's in front of us? Well, to answer your second question, absolutely. I think if a trial generate, you know, has OS data at the time of a presentation, it should be shown. And Mo mentioned the heavy patient involvement you know, in the design of the trial, imagine patients want to see all the results, right? They want to, they want all the information just like Yeah, I don't know, by the way, whether Mo has that data. So I'm not suggesting he has it. Yeah, he, yeah, might, yeah. He, might, he might simply not have it. I'm not, I'm, I'm, and that's one of the advantages of having the guest on the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I agree with you. I mean, it would be nice to see. I don't think we would expect any surprises here for the reasons you mentioned. But I think broadly speaking, you know, 
uh, in general, yeah, we want we want to see all the data, right? If, if there's an analysis, we want to see it because, as you said in your discussion today, I mean, things can be negative for a hundred different reasons, and there's there's negative OS overlapping curves, and there's negative OS where it's trending but didn't quite hit, and not enough alpha. And what are you gonna like What are you gonna tell your patients after today um, around uh, those patients I, taking part in neoadjuvant yeah. studies that are ongoing? Uh, oh, I thought you were gonna ask about adjuvant therapy. I'll come to that in a second. I've got both questions. Um, well, I don't think I have any neoadjuvant studies ongoing, but I don't think I tell them anything different. I mean, I think to me, neoadjuvant is a platform for biomarker discovery and biology. And so I think- and What are you tailoring your patients about adjuvant therapy then? I, you know, I was fairly cautious in my application of Pembro and restricting it to the, say, the upper half of risk for what entered Keynote. Um, I've had a couple of those discussions since the press releases came out and it's the same discussion, but then I add a sentence and say, oh, by the way, there's, you know, three other trials that didn't show benefit in this setting. And I, you know, might say, you know, there's reasons for that and they're not exactly the same. And I don't think it's influenced much my practice or patient's decision making. But I would say about half the patients I offer accept and half don't. So pa patients are rightly cautious and they're very cautious when they experience a little toxicity. So I, I think they understand the benefit risk in this circumstance fairly well. Well, Brian, I think this is the, one of the few podcasts, we've, first podcast we've done without a guest in the second <laughs> half, and it's gone really well. So, congratulations! Hey, a new model, a new model. All right, great uh, discussion today. Yeah, thanks tomorrow, I mean, of course. We'll, uh, for, I'm for sure his, I'll see you uh, soon. study. See you soon, bye now. All right, cheers.